Wendy for leading us. Wendy has had a slight head start in so much as she heard the message that I'm going to bring you today last week when we were out in Koryong together and so the selection of songs matched beautifully with the uh, the theme that we're working on and uh, whether you'd been at Koryong or not that seems to happen and I believe that's because God ordains what takes place in the context of our worship so uh, thank you Wendy. There's a young person who I don't think is here this morning, typically he is here at night or serving out in kids church, you guys can see if you can work out who it is, who every time I have a haircut, which is about once every couple of months or so and I walk through the door, he sits up the back there and he kind of goes like this, (laughs) as though to say, I notice you've had a haircut and I kind of want to go to him, thank you Captain Obvious. It's one of those uh, those lovely kind of little interactions that takes place um, between the two of us. But it, uh, it it reminds me of the blessing that there is in that I reckon I've only paid for a haircut about three times in my life. Because uh, not because I don't have much hair, but because Diana has um, picked up <coughs> the cudgels, so to speak, or the tools, or the hair clippers, more specifically. And uh, she does it for me. And so over the years, I estimate we've saved hundreds and hundreds of dollars. And, uh, and it's, you know, it's as good as the hairdresser would do anyway. I mean, my hair's not, it doesn't require a, a whole heap of styling or anything like that. At least I don't think so. And so I get a free haircut, except it's not always free. <laughs> there are sometimes some conditions attached to it. For instance... Uh, there are, there's occasionally uh, a deal that goes down that's like this, I'll give you a haircut if you give me a head massage of about the same length of time. <laughs> yeah. Or a back massage or something like that. And then there are other things that kind of happen. Uh, most recently, like in the last couple of years, post-children, um, this is what's happened. We'll be in the middle of the haircut and she'll say, gee, there's a whole lot more grey hair here than there used to be. (laughs) And I'll remind Diana that grey hair, according to Proverbs 16.31, is a crown of splendour, the sign of a righteous life. (laughs) Don't think that applies to Santa Claus, but I'm going to claim that one. And as I'm sitting there, um, you know, and reflecting on the years, I'm thinking, I'm at that stage of life where I really should be giving attention to, to eating really healthy food and uh, avoiding all of, the, all of the artificial stuff. But to be frankly honest with you, as you get older, you need all the preservatives you can get. So <laughs> let's just hit them up, I say. <laughs> There's all sorts of funny things we could reflect on as as age creeps up on us. But one of the beautiful things and one of the things I want us to think about just for a moment before we come to the Word this morning is the manner in which our lives, and we don't notice this so much when we're young, but we do as we become older and perhaps wiser or more mature, we notice how our lives intersect with people. Sometimes in my experience, uh, my life has intersected with someone at one point and <clears throat> we've gone separate ways and then re-engaged at another point. Sometimes I have met someone at the first meeting, I thought, well, this person's kind of, you know, interesting and it has just been a cursory kind of an introduction, just a 
just an introduction I guess you'd say but then over the years you look back and say gee hasn't that friendship developed hasn't that relationship developed and deepened over the years people who we've had perhaps nothing to do with at one stage in life we turn back and look back and say wow look at that look at how God has brought that person into my life look at how God has journeyed with us in that relationship and I think that's one of the joys of of doing that is looking back and recognizing that uh, relationships kind of develop they don't usually go from zero to 100 in 10 minutes do they there is occasions I'm just looking a couple of people are looking at each other so maybe for you it did there are occasions where uh, you know you might describe it as love at first sight uh, and a relationship certainly does develop quickly there are occasions when that happens but it's my experience at least perhaps um, this is a personality thing is that it takes time it builds up over time and when I read the uh, Mark's gospel particularly the passage that we're going to look at here in a moment I'm quite confronted because it would appear that this relationship between Jesus and the disciples that he called uh, it went from zero to 100 in a matter of minutes Let's have a look at the text. If you've got a Bible or a device or some way of following, uh, it will also be up here on the screen. Let's read through um, the text this morning and see uh, what the text says for us. This is Mark chapter 1, verse 14, our third instalment in our series from the Gospel. Uh, Take notice this morning of some of the markers of time and place. So here is the first one, the first marker for time. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people at once they left their nets and followed him. That's quite confronting, isn't it? Uh, Straight away, they left their nets and followed him. Verse 19, when he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. The translation that I've just used uh, has lost a little bit of the forcefulness of Mark's language because the word immediately is used on multiple occasions through these first few uh, verses in the Gospel of Mark. Immediately this happened, immediately it happens straight away. It's a fast, punchy story that Mark uh, relates to us with this passage speaking about the calling of the disciples and it's fast-paced in the same way that everything else that Mark writes is fast-paced. As Jesus was walking by the lake, we hear here in this part of Mark's Gospel, he saw Simon and Andrew and he called them. What happened? At once they left their nets and followed him. You don't get much more abrupt or decisive than that. But there's a little question that kind of troubles me a bit. Did it actually happen like that? Is this the first time that Jesus has met these guys? Or is there more to the story than Mark's telling us? And I want to put it to you this morning that there is actually more to the story than Mark tells us. Mark actually chooses to tell us the story in this way for a particular reason and I'll explain why. 
But this morning we're just going to unpack a little bit of the historical background to the calling of the disciples before we come to that and then ask the question, why is it that Mark only tells us this part of the story? And the reason that he does that is because he actually wants to communicate something really deep and something quite challenging for us, something that we need to get our heads around. One of the challenges that we face in in reading the scripture is this. Uh, the Gospels that we have, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, uh, when they were written, the authors never set out to write a, 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 an entirely chronological record of the life of Jesus, as was typical of historical authors in that day they wrote with a purpose they had an agenda if you like or they had a goal or a reason for writing and so they would select stories they would select what uh, we might call uh, snapshots of the life in this case the life of Jesus to achieve that end they're all true stories there's no question about that it's just not necessarily the order that would reflect the original chronology of what happens And one of the challenges that we face as we read the Gospels is that we read them one at a time. We read through the Gospel of Mark or we read through the Gospel of Luke or we read through the Gospel of Matthew when in actual fact the best thing to do would be to read all of them at once. How do you do that? Well, you can do that if you're up for a challenge. Grab yourself a harmony of the Gospels. You can get them at Kurong. This is not a Kurong ad but they're available there. And you can actually read them in what the scholars believe is the most likely chronological order and figure out that there's some surprising things that happen that you didn't realise happened. For instance, if I asked you the question, how many times did, uh, did Jesus clear out the temple? Most people would say one time, where in actual fact... There's two times recorded in the Gospels. If you go to the Gospel of John, Jesus went into the temple and cleared it out at the start of his ministry. In fact, very early in his ministry. As we read in the other Gospels, they record another occasion when Jesus went in and cleared out the temple towards the very end of his ministry. In fact, he did that bookending his ministry. There's an interesting sermon in itself, actually. Why and what was going on there? But if we read a harmony of the Gospels bringing our best guess to the chronological order, we discover that the story that we have just read from Mark about the calling of the disciples is in fact not the first time Jesus met the disciples. Or not, let me put it another way, not the first time that Jesus met these men who would become his disciples. He actually met them some time earlier. And it's not the first time that Jesus called them to follow him. In fact, I want to put it to you that Jesus called those guys on three occasions, maybe even more, but certainly three occasions before they became known as the Twelve. That's interesting. Am I bending your heads yet? (laughs) Okay, well, that's good. I'm glad. Let me explain myself so that uh, this is really clear. And what we're going to do is a little bit of forensic work on the Scripture this morning. This will be fun. If you were here a fortnight ago, you might remember that we spoke about uh, the ministry of John the Baptist. Let's see if we can get John the Baptist to appear for us, who uh, ushered in a new work that God was doing. He was announcing something was happening, repent for the kingdom of God is near. And John uh, was surrounded by crowds of people. Now, I'm going to give you a little pattern here, which is going to be really useful as we think about what it means to do ministry around us. John was surrounded by a number of people, 
including the cautious, those who kind of stood way off at a distance, thought, what's going on here? And there's people like that in our community today. You know, don't want anything much to do with the church, bit sus about what goes on in this building. You Christians, you're all kind of cranky. There were, well, some of you are. Uh, the courteous, you know, yes, you do your own thing and I'll do my own thing. The curious, I wonder what is going on in that context. The connected, the convicted and the committed. Now, there's a little pattern of kind of where people stand in relation to Jesus Christ, isn't it? You might want to ask yourself, where do you fit on that kind of continuum, if you want to use it as a continuum? And Mark tells us that there were people from all over Judea, all of the inhabitants of Jerusalem came down to see John, and there were people probably in each of those categories. The cautious, the curious, uh, sorry, the courteous, the curious, the connected, the convinced, and the committed. We're also told, and this is important too, see if we can get the next slide up here, that John was baptising at the Jordan River down by the Dead Sea at Bethany beyond the Jordan. So this map will indicate to us, if you look there just to the the north of the Dead Sea, John was baptising in that kind of area, not so far from Jerusalem, fairly long way from Galilee. Now we also know, as we continue to unpack the evidence... The scripture tell us that John the Baptist had disciples or followers himself. In fact, if you have a look at somewhere like John 3.26, for instance, uh, the disciples of John are concerned that Jesus' disciples were baptising more people than John and his disciples were. Is that a problem? And John said, no, no stress about that. Uh, In Matthew chapter 9, verse 13, John's disciples are recorded as asking Jesus a question about fasting. One of the things that we often don't kind of grab is this we actually know the name of one of John's disciples believe it or not we actually know the name of one of John's disciples does anyone have any idea who it might have been if you don't don't panic I'm going to explain let's go to John chapter 1 to uh, to figure this out John chapter 1 verse 24 now the Pharisees who had been sent the head honchos from the religious organization questioned Uh, him John why then do you baptize if you're not the Messiah nor Elijah nor the prophet I baptize with water John replied but among you stands one who you don't know he is the one who comes after me the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie this was all happening at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing now back to our map Uh, let's just get back to there here we go Uh, remember that's the place The next day, John saw Jesus coming to him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Now, here's some chronology. Let's say it was Wednesday that this happened. If we move on in the text, on Thursday, the next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard this, they followed Jesus Turning around, they saw them following and asked, what do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying and they spent that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Now the question is, what was the name of those disciples or one of those disciples at least? Well, John does actually tell us in the very next verse, 
Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. And the first thing that Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Now here's some really critical, interesting information, isn't it? We know the name of one of John's disciples. One of John's disciples was Andrew who became a disciple of Jesus. And so we can say with absolute certainty that Jesus first met Andrew and Simon to become known as Peter and if we read on in the Gospel of John, Philip and Nathaniel as well, way down there at the Jordan near the Dead Sea, long before he called them, not that long but some time before he called them, up there at Galilee as recorded by Mark. Now there's two observations let me just make by way of application before we address the question why Mark doesn't tell us this that we should make and and these are by way of encouragement and challenge to us. What we read here in John is this, when Andrew uh, met Jesus and discovered who he was, what was the first thing he went to do? He went, he went straight away Thanks, Stuart. He went straight away and he called Peter. He said, come and see who I found. Come and see who I found. And when Jesus met Philip, what is the first thing that Philip did? He went and found Nathaniel and he said, come and see who I found. Come and see who I found. First principle of disciple making. And something we really need to get hold of is this. The, and just be reminded, of course, in the Great Commission, Jesus talks about us going and making disciples as we go, make disciples of all nations. One of the great uh, challenges and opportunities of that is uh, th- that which we do. We don't actually have to convince people to become disciples of Christ. Our role is to invite them to come and have a look. Come and see. Come and see who we have found. Come and have a look at who it is that we worship. Come along to our youth group and see. Come along to our church and see. Come along to our program. Come along to our meeting in the community. Come along and see this Jesus. The invitation that uh, comes from this passage, and I guess it is an encouragement for us, is that we don't actually do the work of convincing. We don't have to get someone and knuckle them and say, you've got to believe our role is actually to come, uh, is to invite them to come because it's the Holy Spirit that does the work of convincing. It's the Holy Spirit who does the work of transformation in a person's life. We can't do that. I can't do that. No amount of fancy words or, uh, or what's a good one for you, Roderick? Loquacious argument uh, is going to ever convince a person to become a Christian. Uh, it's the work of God's Spirit that does that. But our job as disciple makers is to invite people into that space. There's the first encouragement. The second one. A really obvious observation but one worth making anyway is this. Uh, As I said a moment ago, uh, people who gathered around John's ministry were these ones, the cautious, the courteous, the curious, the connected, the convinced and the committed. I can't think of anybody who's a disciple of Jesus Christ who's gone from being cautious to committed in three minutes. It takes time. The process of disciple making takes time it's a growing process it's a moving ahead process it's an upward trajectory kind of a process we all should be growing we should all should be moving along that continuum and a question that i would put to you in another context is where do you sit yourself on this continuum some people in the church may be the courteous you're here because someone's dragged you along you've come out of um, out of not wishing to offend them 
Or perhaps you're here because you're curious. You just kind of wonder what's going on. There's something, you know, you're hungry for something in life. There's something just not kind of fitting together. Uh, maybe there's something in this Christianity stuff after all. Maybe you're one of the connected, someone who's here because you've made a connection. Maybe you are convinced and maybe you're one of the committed, those who are saying, rightio, I'm all in. We'll talk about what that looks like in just a moment. The process of being a disciple is a growing, progressive process. And that's true if you have a look at the experience of Jesus' disciples too. Because when they were first called, they responded to Jesus in some manner. But you know what they did after that? They went back and went back to fishing. They were down there at the Jordan. Really interesting reflecting on these guys. You know, these people like uh, Andrew and, uh, and Simon and Philip and Nathaniel, they were hungry for something. They were looking for something. They were down there. Uh, they met Jesus. They were impressed by him. They realized there was something special about him. But interestingly enough, they kind of went back to their, their day jobs for a while. And Jesus met them again up there at the lake, the second time as is recorded in the passage that we've just read here. There might have been other engagements, we don't know. Uh, and this time the, ra- the, the call of Jesus has ramped up a little bit. It's a stronger call, it's a call that demands more of a response. If you go to um, uh, Luke chapter 5, I think it is, Luke records this same story but he adds a really interesting little bit to it. Because Jesus met these guys and said, let's go out into the water and put down your nets. You remember this story? And they scratched their heads and they said, you've got to be joking. We've been out fishing all night. We've caught nothing. What's the point? And who goes fishing in the middle of the day anyway? Some people might. Those that um, value their sleep probably. But the disciples, they were a little bit antsy about this. They went out, they put down their nets and they caught an enormous bunch of fish. What's going on there? I reckon it's Jesus' way of saying to them, if you respond to my call, you don't need to worry about uh, your families because they'll be looked after. I can provide your physical needs, your day-to-day needs. It was Jesus' subtle way of saying, you'll be taken care of. Luke records that. He tells us that in Luke chapter 5. And then if you want to fill in the gaps too, I did suggest there were three times. There was another occasion, this will be found too in Luke chapter 6, where Jesus gathered his disciples together on a mountain in Galilee and appointed the twelve. Why Why three times? Why did Jesus call them to follow three times? Were they kind of thick, you know? These guys, were they just simple in their head or what was going on? Did they not hear him? Did they not understand? Were they reluctant? Were they disobedient? No, I don't think that's the case. I think what the Gospels actually communicate to us is that becoming a disciple is a gradual growing process. It's a process that should be deepening but like relationships that we build with people through life, uh, they don't go from zero to a hundred in an afternoon normally. A healthy disciple is a steadily growing disciple. So back to the question, why does Mark not tell us the whole story? Why does Mark give us just this little insight? Was it... (laughs) Was it because Mark was on a budget? He didn't have enough papyrus, so he thought, gee, I better keep this short and sweet. Or uh, was it because Mark didn't know his history? I doubt that. Was it because he didn't think it was important to tell us that? No, I don't think it was the case at all. I think it was this. It was because Mark knew 
that he had a very specific intention in writing and he wanted to achieve that very specific intention. He wanted to communicate uh, who Jesus was. He wanted his listeners, his readers, to ask that question, who is this Jesus and what is this disciple-making stuff that's going on here? What is it to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? And there's possibly four, uh, four things that Mark wants to emphasise by telling us just what he's told us, just this short, pithy, punchy kind of a story that we find here in Mark chapter 1, verse 14. Let me just throw uh, four ideas at you. The first one is this one, the call to be a disciple of Christ is a compelling call. I suspect that one of the reasons Mark's kept it so tight so summarised, so punchy is this. He wants people to understand that if God calls, it's a compelling call. Does that make sense? It's a call that needs to be responded to. It's not a call that you can go, oh, I'll think about that. Get back to you next week. Let me uh, let me consider a few other things. In fact, there's some suggestion in the Scriptures that if you do that, it's not worthy of the call. Let me give you an example. If we go to uh, Luke, again, chapter 9... Uh, story that you might be familiar with as they were walking Jesus and his disciples were walking along the road a man said to him I will follow you wherever you go and Jesus replied foxes have dens and birds have nests but the son of man has no place to lay his head he said to another follow me but the Lord uh, sorry but he replied Lord let me go and bury my father first Jesus said to him let the dead bury their own dead but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. And Jesus said, no one who puts a hand to the plough and looks back is fit for the service of the kingdom of God. So Mark wants us to understand, here's the first thing, that this call is a compelling call. It's a call that needs to be responded to. If God is calling you, it's a call you need to action. It's not a call that you can park and say, I'll deal with that another day when I'm older, when I've got some time, when my children have grown up or whatever it might be. It's a call that needs to be acted on. The second observation that I'd make is this one, the call to be a disciple is the choice of God. I am chosen was uh, one of the catchphrases in the very first song that we sang this morning. And that I was reflecting on even in our prayer time this morning is such an amazing thing, isn't it? You know, we are called by God, but God's actually chosen us. He's chosen us. Just reflect on the significance of that for a moment. You've been chosen by God. You've been chosen by the God who made the earth and everything in it, the almighty, all-powerful, sovereign God. He chose you. In fact, if we go to uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 to 5, Paul actually says these words, He chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love, He predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and will. Now, those of you who are doing the studies through the week, you can argue over this whole predestination business as much as you like. Uh, cut loose and have some fun but just don't lose of the sight uh, don't lose sight of this important fact God chose you pastorally God chose you what does that say about our identity you know we have a lot of people in our world and people in our church who struggle with who am I do I have any significance do I have any value am I important do I leave a legacy is there anything that I can do Just remember, God chose you. He chose you to be a disciple. He's chosen you to serve him. He's chosen you as one of his children. 
What greater affirmation can there be for a person than that? There is none. Nothing greater, nothing higher. Jesus does not do what we often do in the life of the church. This is not a criticism of what we do, it's just how we kind of have to roll sometimes. You know, we ask for volunteers. I'm doing some work uh, next week on such and such. Anyone want to help out? Totally forgot an announcement that I was going to do this morning. I'm looking for some people who might be prepared to join the um, uh, emergency chaplaincy training that's coming up. Anybody want to volunteer for that? You know, we ask for people to put out their hands and volunteers. God doesn't do that. He chooses. He reaches out. None of you are here by accident this morning. That's a great affirmation too, isn't it? You're all here because we are all here because God has chosen us. The third observation is this one, the call to be a disciple is a powerful call. I think Mark wanted us to hear and understand that. You know, Jesus spoke just three words, come follow me and what happened? Those disciples came along and they followed him. In fact, through the Gospel of Mark we see on a number of occasions this same powerful word coming from the one that John describes as the word a powerful call. Mark chapter 1 verse 25 for example, uh, I'm not sure whether we'll get to this next week, um, Mark 1.25, what did Jesus say? Be silent and the demons were silent. In Mark 4.39 he said to the storm as they were riding the storm in the boat, be still and what happened? The sea was calm. In Mark chapter 5 verse 41, a little girl was raised back to life. And how did that happen? Because Jesus spoke the word and she was raised back to life. On Mark, Mark chapter 7, verse 34, a guy who was deaf, Jesus spoke the word, Ephathra, and his deaf ears were open, that powerful word. Mark chapter 11, verse 14 and verse 20. Remember the story, Jesus was walking along and there was a fig tree that he looked for some fruit on. There was nothing. He cursed the tree. May you never be, sorry, he cursed the tree. May you never bear fruit again. And what happened to the tree? The next day it was withered up and dead. Powerful word. At the crucifixion, Mark chapter 15, verse 38 and 39, a powerful cry went out from the cross, that cry of dereliction. And the curtain in the temple was torn from the top to the bottom. Significant top to bottom. No human agency could have done it. If it had been humans, it would have been bottom to top but from the top to the bottom at that powerful word. And that drives towards what Mark's purpose in writing this gospel was all about, asking the question, who is Jesus? Who is this person who speaks these words? Who is this person who compels such a response? Who is this person who chooses? And the fourth observation about Mark's uh, purpose here is this, the call to be a disciple is an unconditional call. Now here's where it gets heavy. It's a call that uh, is not part-time, it's not um, a volunteer type role. And one of the challenges that we face in our affluent, busy world in terms of being a disciple of Christ is that we try to balance being a disciple with the demands of the world around us, with its comfort and its security. And it's a big risk, let's be honest. It's a big risk putting our uh, life into the hands of God. I'm not going to try and sell you something here that I don't uh, think 
Uh, let me put that another way. I'm not going to try and sell you a lemon here. I'm not going to say to you this morning, be a disciple of Christ. It'll be wonderful. Everything will be terrific. Your life will be blessed and you'll be prosperous and all that kind of stuff. Being a disciple is going to cost. It might be rejection. It might be pain. It might be hurts. It might be all sorts of stuff. You won't find this on the advertising brochures. But that's the truth. But it's an unconditional call. It was a risk that the rich young man that Mark speaks of in chapter 10 refused to take. He said, you've got to give up everything. And the man said, well, I don't think I can do that. And Jesus said, well, you're not worthy of the kingdom. Most people around us, and some of us too from time to time, and I speak about myself, are consumed with anxiety about our earthly destiny, convinced unconvinced that our eternal destiny is best left in the hands of God but that's the truth our eternal destiny is best left in the hands of God back in the time we were working in Papua New Guinea one of the things that used to amuse me was uh, as we were driving along the roadside there were roadside stalls just about every little nook and cranny of a place you went through you know people selling a few pumpkins or sweet potatoes or one market in particular you could get oranges or a market like this one outside Mount Hagen you could get buoy. Now I can tell that none of you have, um, have got into buoy because it's a kind of a mixture of beetle nut and, and, uh, and other toxic stuff that turns your mouth a bright bright red and it rots your teeth. But um, you know you could buy oil or tinned fish or two minute noodles or um, greens or all sorts of stuff in the markets but one of the things that used to amuse me was as you were driving past occasionally you'd see a coffin outside a trade store and I'd drive by thinking that is the last thing I need <laughs> but that took a few moments to drop didn't it <laughs> But as I looked at those, I was reminded of some of the stories that I'd read of missionaries who had served in that Melanesian part of the world uh, who actually packed <clears throat> their possessions in coffins before they disembarked from their home port and travelled to places like Tahiti or Fiji or other places. True stories of faithful men and women who realised that they would not be coming back because the call to be a disciple was so strong, so compelling, so uh, convincing and so unconditional that they realised they needed to prepare for the fact that they would not be coming back. And so quite literally they packed their earthly possessions that they were taking into those places into coffins so that they had one ready for that time. For some of them that time came rather too soon. That's an example of what it means to be a disciple, isn't it? There's a couple of stories that I've read over the years of people like this guy, A.W. Milne, who was born in 1785, who set sail for the New Hebrides in the South Pacific, absolutely aware of the fact that the headhunters there had martyred every missionary who went before him, and yet he still went. And Milne didn't fear for his life because he believed that he had already died to himself. His coffin was packed. 
And the story goes that he lived amongst the people in Tahiti for 35 years. And when they buried him in the middle of the village, they inscribed this on his tombstone, these words, when he came, there was no light. When he left, there was no darkness. Isn't that amazing? When he came, there was no light. When he left, there was no darkness. A guy who packed his coffin in response to the call to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Another rather interesting customer was uh, this guy, James Calvert, 1813 to 1892, who committed his life to reaching the indigenous peoples in Fiji. It was widely reported as he was travelling on his journey, the ship's captain warned him to turn back saying, you will lose your life and the lives of those with you if you go amongst those savages. And Calvert reportedly replied, we died before we came. We died before we came. And people like Calvert and Milne I find deeply challenging because they actually understand the implications of passages like Galatians 2.20 which says, I have been crucified with Christ. Because that's what it means to be a true disciple, to be crucified with Christ, to be dead to ourselves. And the first and most essential act of being a disciple is firing the planning committee in your heart and dying to self. We struggle with that though, don't we? Gee, we do. And those guys, just two examples of many other men and women that we could talk about, lived powerfully for God because they recognised the greatest barrier to discovering all that God had is actually a preoccupation with self. They died to self. They got rid of that preoccupation. And that's why Jesus declared unapologetically in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. You see, the cross is more than just a religious symbol. Some of us wear it as decoration. When Jesus made that statement, it was a symbol of death. Take up your cross, die to yourself. It was a symbol of torture, of humiliation. And so with those words, you can understand that Jesus is not in the business of how to win friends and influence people. You don't win a following. You don't build a faithful a band of disciples by telling them that they have to be at the bottom of the organisational flowchart, but Jesus did. Die to self. Marx uh, summarised here in the briefest possible form and I think with such clarity and such challenge what it actually does mean to be a disciple. It's a compelling, powerful call. It's a call that uh, causes us to reflect and ask, you know, where am I? What am I doing? Where do I stand in relation to this God who has chosen me and called me? He tells us here in verse 17, Jesus said, come follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. There's a whole lot in that too. I won't unpack that this morning. And at once they left their nets and followed him. They responded. And that's the invitation this morning too, to respond to this call of God. We're going to take a moment to pray and I want to encourage you this morning to consider what does it actually look like to respond to God's call? I speak to many who have known what it has been like to be a disciple for many years. Perhaps today God is saying, okay, it's time to respond to that next level of call. What is God saying to you this morning? Let's pray and, uh, and give some space to the Spirit to speak to us.
Lord, we again are deeply challenged by your word. It doesn't let us sit comfortably, never does. We're challenged because we know our hearts, Lord. We know how easily we fall into the pattern of, uh, of uh, trying to look after ourselves, look after our plans, um, put in place stuff that will keep us safe and secure and you come along and you just blow that out of the water and say, follow me. Follow me and I'll show you another way. Lord, this morning we would pray as you speak into the hearts of us, your people, that if we hear the Spirit stirring us to take a step of obedience, to respond to you, perhaps to a challenge that you've put before us, to a call that you've laid upon us, to take a step of faith, even a step of faith of accepting you as Lord of our lives, a step of faith that might mean a a change in direction, in vocation, a step of faith that might uh, cause us to step out and do something that we find a little bit fearful or anxiety-inducing or perhaps to call us to do something we haven't done before. Father, help us to respond in the manner of these disciples as we have illustrated here in the Gospel of Mark who just left what they were doing and went for it. Lord, we've spoken before of how when we say yes to Jesus we can be guaranteed of one thing and that is we'll never have a boring life because you take us on a journey of faith and growth that in time we will look back on and say, thank you, Lord. Thank you for stepping in to, uh, to the ordinariness and creating something extraordinary. For that is the call of the life of a disciple to an extraordinary life, a life walking in concert with you, a life walking in step with your spirit. Lord, speak to us, we pray. Help us to be like Christ. Help us to daily die to ourselves, to take up our cross and walk with you. We thank you again for speaking. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.